Good morning, friends and family. You may be seated. Uh, welcome to Convergent Church, and I'm just, I'm just excited, guys. I'm excited for another morning of learning at the feet of our Master Jesus. And uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're jumping in with us uh, for the first time, we're actually walking through uh, kind of the opening salvo of, of Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and a portion of Scripture that's called the Beatitudes. And we've titled this series, uh, Blessed, A Journey Through the Beatitudes. Like, one thing that we're understanding is that Jesus wants his people to be blessed. Like, they, he deeply desires his people to be blessed, but in order for us to be blessed, we have to understand exactly what that means. And I just want to ask you a question. Like, for those of you who have been following along with the series, I think this is our, our fourth sermon in the series. Like, do you notice yourself thinking and living a little bit differently after hearing these truths of Jesus? Like, I know as someone who, you know, pours over these texts and tries to, to bring you what the truth of this, this text is, like, I notice in my life a difference. I notice a difference in Jameson, and that's a good thing. That's the goal of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Jesus desires to make disciples who look like and act like and think like and who desire the things that he desires. Christ quite literally wants to reproduce his image so that God would be seen and that God would get more and more and more and more glory and that we would ultimately be blessed by that, that we would be happy when God is glorified in our lives. And so uh, before we jump into the sermon proper, um, I just like to summarize sort of these, these upside down, yet uh, just incredibly transformational truths that Jesus has laid down so far for us in the Beatitudes. So first we saw that Jesus said this, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And, and in that portion of scripture, we saw that a poor and beggarly state in our spirits before God was a position that ultimately could bring us into eternal life and sort of was the starting point for our, our journey in Christ-likeness. And um, we kind of walked away with this thought, you must come to Jesus knowing that you have nothing to offer Jesus and understanding that he has what only he can give you. He has eternal life. He has resurrection for you, and that he is the giver of that thing. Secondly, Jesus said this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. From this, we learned that mourning over our sinfulness was a good thing. Like, we live in a culture where people tell you you're not supposed to feel bad about yourself, but hey, when I do something bad towards my wife or my children or my coworkers, like, it's right for me to feel bad about that. And so, uh, Pastor Dan showed us that mourning over our sin was a good thing, and that it laid hold of a promise of comfort from God, that those who are humble before God and confess that they are sinners ultimately receive God's comfort. And that was not only in an eternal sense, but it's also that God gives great comfort to those people now in this life as we walk through trials. Thirdly, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we saw that what meekness, right, was not weakness, but a desire to channel our power and our potential in ways that ultimately glorify God and that sought his goals in the world. And Jesus promises that we can be blessed, like we can be happy, we can be content, we can know God's favor 
when we choose these blessed attitudes. Now, um, when Chelsea and I go out to dinner, uh, we almost always have to share an appetizer, and that almost always drives me absolutely crazy. Um, not because I don't like sharing with my wife. I love sharing with my wife. When we first got married, I hated sharing. Like, I was that guy who was like, you want fries? And she'd be like, no. And then she'd eat one of my fries, and I'd be like, hey, waitress, can we get another fry, right? Like, don't eat my fries. Uh, I'm not like that anymore. Ten years of marriage has changed me. Um, but the reason I get so frustrated with having to share an appetizer with my wife is because I'm not old, but I'm, I'm old enough to remember when appetizers, like, had a purpose, like an appetizer in your meal has a purpose. Nowadays, when you go to, let's say, Applebee's, which I don't eat there because their food is gross, but you go, like, if you go and eat somewhere, right, and you order an appetizer, see Rose, yeah, that's my girl. Um, but, like, if you order an appetizer, it's like a plate of nachos that's the size of your abdomen, right? Like, it's huge. You can't possibly finish all of it yourself. There's just too much to eat alone. And here's the thing. Here's my issue with appetizers. kind of sound like Jerry Seinfeld here. Um, but my, my issue with appetizers is that they have a function. An appetizer is meant to stimulate one's appetite. That's what an appetizer does. It's supposed to be something small that gets someone who is not ready to eat, ready to eat. That's what an appetizer is supposed to do. It's meant to awaken the appetite for someone who is not hungry in the moment. It's designed is to be less substantial, and lighter than the main course that's coming. But when me and my wife go out to order, if we get our own appetizers and we eat that whole appetizer, we take like three bites of our, our main course and we're already calling for a to-go box because we're not hungry anymore. We lose our appetite for that which we came to actually enjoy. And this week, Jesus is gonna continue his instruction to us in, in this beatitude. And he says this in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And like, honestly, guys, as, I, as I'm reading through the list of Beatitudes, and, and Dan and I are thinking about sermons, and this is just my opinion, but I honestly believe that like, if you're tracking with this series, like this particular text in the Beatitudes, it, it, it holds the most weight for the life of an average Christian. Like if you're going through this series and you walk away at the end of this series and you remember one sermon, I want you to remember this one, not because I'm preaching it. Dan could be preaching it. We could have a guest pastor in here preaching it, not because of who's preaching it, but because of the truth that is in this text. Like, please remember this. Walk away with deep truths today. And I'd just like to tackle this text by answering two really big questions and just throwing some smaller questions in there. So the two big questions we're going to answer this morning, first is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like, what is Jesus getting at when he says that we can be happy, we can be content when we do this thing? And secondly, how does God satisfy our hunger and thirst for righteousness? So what does it mean to hunger and thirst, and how does God satisfy that hunger and thirst. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, the Bible has a lot to say about the concept of righteousness. And as I was looking at this text, I kind of wanted to think about everything the Bible has to say about righteousness. And so I decided to paint with a really broad brush this morning. And my goal is really to just show you all the biblical angles of what this word righteousness means. Like what is Jesus getting at 
when he says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's start with that question. What does it mean to hunger and to thirst for righteousness? So Jesus, as the greatest teacher that ever walked the face of the earth, is using a picture that's natural to all humanity. Like, everyone understands what it feels like to hunger, and everyone knows what it feels like to thirst. And so Jesus is using this idea that is common to all people, thing that his listeners are familiar with, in order to introduce them to something that they're not familiar with. Like, this is a mark of a good teacher. If you want to find a good teacher, find someone who takes what you're already familiar with and uses that to steer you to something you're not familiar with. That's what good teachers do. And honestly, just as a desert-dwelling people, the Jews were very familiar with what it felt like to hunger and thirst. They lived in a desert. It was hot. There was not much water. Food was often scarce. And so Jesus is now introducing them taking that concept of hunger and thirst, and he wants to introduce them to a new type of hunger and thirst. It's not a physical sustenance. It's not a physical thirst. It's not a physical hunger, but it's a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst. He wants to produce in those who are listening to him a new kind of longing. He wants his people to have a new kind of longing, and it's a spiritual longing. It's ultimately a longing at the deepest level of our being. It's a, it's a longing in the inner person, in the true person. And I know that that resonates with many of you because you've come here with longings like this. You've come here with longings that are inside of you. They are in your soul. They are in your spirit. They are deep down. You see, God has created everything with a design and a purpose. There's nothing that's created that does not have a reason for being created and a design in which it is supposed to operate. The sun was designed to give heat and light to the universe. The tides were designed to bring balance to the earth. The bird was designed to fly. It was designed to fill the sky with song and melody. The ant was designed to build and to work, and humanity was designed to know and enjoy God at a deep, intimate level. Anybody from a Presbyterian background here at all? Yeah, Bob and Bev. Yeah, I could ask them, what's the chief end of man, right? To love God and enjoy him forever. This is what we are designed for. We were created with an inconsolable hunger and an unquenchable thirst in our souls. And I'm willing to wager that your everyday life can give a lot of support to my claims this morning. I'm just going to throw some statements out there, and I want you to think if any of these statements resonate with you, okay? All right, first one. No matter how much I sleep, I am always tired. Whitney's like, yes, teaching is hard. <laughs> Second one, no, no matter how much food I eat, I am always hungry. Go a little bit deeper. No matter how much I work, I am still anxious about the result. 
No matter how much TV or streaming I watch, I am always bored. No matter how much I indulge in lust and fantasy and escapism, I'm still always lonely. No matter how much intimacy I get in my marriage, I'm still dissatisfied with my spouse. No matter what substances I take, I'm still unhappy inside and without peace. No matter how many clothes I buy, I still despise the way I look. No matter how much I exercise, I'm still uncomfortable with my body. No matter how many vacations I take, I still hate my life. No matter how much I accomplish, I still feel like I'm a failure. And the list could go on. This is just the, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The, there's so much more that we could say here. God asks his people a very important question in Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. He says this, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. There is something inside of the human soul and spirit that cannot be satisfied, and yet we attempt to satisfy it with anything we can. There is a hole in our spirit that only God can fill. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why are you using your resources and your time on something that is not going to ultimately satisfy you? Why are you working so hard? You spend your labor for that which does not satisfy. Why are you pressing all of your resources and wasting your life on something that is not going to ultimately leave you satisfied? And Jesus says in this text, in the Beatitudes, that righteousness somehow satisfies that longing in our hearts. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And I want to give you three pictures of righteousness that illustrate what the Bible means by hungering and thirsting for it. So three pictures. First picture is this. A dirty person longing to be clean. Now, I have three boys, and um, there is a stage in the future of our family unit that I am absolutely dreading. I've been told by people who have boys that there's going to come a day where all of my boys are going to hate showering. Like, they are just, they're not going to, like, it keeps me up at night, guys. I have three of them. I'm thinking about the stink of my house in that season and not only are they going to just dislike showers, but they are going to adamantly go to great lengths to make sure that not a single drop of water touches their body. And some of you are laughing because we're like, yeah, we've been, we've, we've been in that season. Here's the thing, guys. There's nothing natural about a dirty person longing to stay dirty. That's not normal. There's nothing natural about a, a dirty person longing to stay Dirty. Like, I'm fine with getting dirty. I'm even fine with getting really dirty, but I eventually want to get clean. I don't want to stay that way forever. And this is the biblical concept of positional 
righteousness. We're going to look at three different kinds of righteousness today. But positional righteousness. The Bible attests that all people are dirty in God's sight. They're valued. They're not worthless, but they are dirty. And God looks at us and he sees the sin that riddles our lives and pollutes our actions and misplaces our affections. And from his point of perfect holiness and wisdom and goodness, he looks at us and says, you can't come near me in your dirty state. You cannot approach me the way that you are. We cannot approach God without first being washed of the dirt that fills our lives and our fallen state. But in our fallen state, when we hear that we can't approach God, what we say is this, that's fine. I'm okay with being dirty. I wasn't really trying to approach you anyways, God. We're like the 13-year-old boy who is just super happy with his stink, and it's invading everyone's territory, but he's just like, it's fine. This is how I am. We are positionally, before God, unclean, and we're okay with that. And add to this the further problem that we cannot clean ourselves because the dirtiness that fills our lives does not flow from the actions that we take, but it flows from who we are. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And that's a big difference. I am not a sinner because of the actions I take. I take the actions I take because of what's inside of me. And that is huge. My actions don't make me what I am, but they flow from who I am. And this is our natural state before God. So what does God do when he looks on us in this state? Well, he looks on us with our inability to approach, our absence of desire to know him, and the impossibility of cleaning ourselves up from the inside. And this holy and just and perfectly wise and good God looks on sinners he has mercy. This is what God does. He has mercy. He knows that we cannot and will not come to him unless he first acts on our behalf. And so he chooses to change us for our own good. He chooses to wash us for our own good. And he makes provision. He provides for our sins. He provides for our dirty state by sending his sinless and perfectly clean son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place, to be murdered on a cross for our dirtiness. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That word iniquity does not mean sins of commission, what we do. It does not mean sins of omission, what we fail to do. Iniquities means who we are. That's an iniquity. The prophet David said this, behold, I was born in iniquity. From the womb, I was dirty. And the Bible says that Jesus dies for that kind of sin. And so we call this imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. It's a positional righteousness. God takes our sin, our dirtiness, our curse, and he lifts it off of sinners because of the sacrifice of Jesus, and he puts it on his son. He lays it on the shoulders of his perfect son. And simultaneously, he takes the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect standing of Jesus, the justified state of Jesus, and he lifts it and he puts it on the shoulders 
of sinners so we can be justified and forgiven and favored. That's what God does. And it's amazing. And all this begins with a change in our affections that is brought on by God. We call this regeneration. God sends his Holy Spirit to stir the affections in our hearts to where we once loved our stink, we now desire to be clean. And when God has done his sovereign work, a person who did not desire a right relationship with God can no longer fathom life without God's loving presence. That's what God does in the heart. It's a change of affections. We have this imputed righteousness and our position before God goes from rebel to ally. It goes from foe to friend. It goes from orphan to adopted. It goes from dead to alive. This is the work of a sovereign God. And he says this is done through faith, simply believing that God can and did do this for us and that we needed it. Now, this is the most basic level of righteousness for which Christians should long a right standing with God. No longer a position of enemy, but now a position of friend. That's picture number one. Picture number two, a child crying for its mother's breast. Now, mothers, I want to paint a scenario for you. Maybe even some of you have walked through this, but so you're pregnant, right? And you've been diligently waiting Nine months for your baby to arrive, you've read the books, and you've gone to the classes, and you've watched the videos, and you've, you've got it all planned out, and you've anticipated this life that's stirring inside of you as you've felt it kicking and, and moving. You've gone through the morning sickness, and the evening sickness, and the afternoon sickness, and finally, the day for the birth of your child arrives and your water breaks and you rush to the hospital or you call the doula and get in the bathtub. I don't know what you have planned, but your water breaks and it's time for your baby to arrive. And after the intense pain of childbirth and the hours, perhaps for some of you, days of pushing, you hold this beautiful baby in your hands and you are overjoyed. Your heart is bursting with love at this moment, but you look at your child and your child is not crying. They're not crying. They're alive, they're breathing, but they're not crying. And as the hours and the days go on, you come to understand that this child has no desire to nurse. They don't want to eat. I just want to ask you a question. Is that natural? No. It's not natural. And why is it not natural? Because babies were made for the breast, and the breast was made for the baby. The baby was designed for the breast, and the breast was designed for the baby. That milk that flows from their mother is life-giving. It's specifically designed for the flourishing of this specific child so that child would grow and become strong like its parents, and yet they have no desire to eat. And so you look at your baby and you say, there's, there's something wrong with my child. This is not normal. Healthy newborns naturally desire the milk of their mothers. 
because it was specifically designed to give them life and help them grow. Christian, you were designed to be satisfied in God and God alone. You were designed to be satisfied in God and in God alone. You were designed to grow in his presence, in a relationship with him. You were designed to thirst for an active relationship of growing up in his likeness. You were designed with a hunger to follow him. And this is the Bible's concept of personal righteousness. We might call it active righteousness, personal holiness, sanctification. There's many words we could use. But the whole idea is that it's a growing righteousness. You are feasting and you are growing. And simply put, it's unnatural for anyone who claims to follow God to not desire the presence of God. That is not normal. That is not how we were designed. Just as it's unnatural for a child to not desire the comfort in the life that its mother Brings. I mean, ultimately, how can we follow someone or emulate someone or be like someone if we have no desire to be like them? I cannot become like someone if I am not willing to be near someone. It's unnatural for those who claim the name of Jesus to lack the desire to be like Jesus. We were made to passionately pursue a life of holiness with him, to hunger and thirst for right positional righteousness and right active righteousness. I love you, boy. It's okay. You can be thirsty. But we were designed for this. That's probably a good analogy. (laughs) We were designed for this, to pursue God in a life of holiness with him, to hunger and thirst for that right positional righteousness and to desire that right active righteousness where we're feasting on God's presence and we're growing up to be like him. We were made to feast at the table with God and to drink from the everlasting, unending wells of God and to be filled with his presence so that we can live as he lives. That's Jesus' goal in the Beatitudes, remember? He wants to reproduce his image in us. And so I just want to ask the question, or maybe have you asked this question for yourself? Why do I not desire God as I should? It's a deep question. Why do I not desire God as I should? I pray we have an answer for that by the end. Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do as I desire for you. There's a connection between affection and desire and obedience because here's the reality. Y'all can't make me do what I don't want to do. Like it just doesn't happen. You can't make me do what I don't want to do. I'm that kind of stubborn person. I have to desire the goal before I can attain the goal. So here's a thought. Husbands, how great is your marriage when you are not pursuing your wife? It's real quiet in here. How great is your marriage when you're not pursuing your wife? When you're not longing to be with her and to spend time with her, right? And trust me, husbands, your wife knows when you're just doing something because you should do it as opposed to when you're doing something when you want to do it, right? There's a big difference there. Or children, how great and awesome is your life when you're constantly disobeying your parents and you're... (laughs) And you're under that heavy thumb of like constant grounding and you're losing your Netflix and no candy and like, it's not fun. 
not fun. There is a connection between affection and obedience. There is a connection between our affections for God and our growing up to be like God. There's a huge connection there. And guys, don't think that this longing for righteousness that God desires in our lives only has ramifications for us personally. Ultimately, this concept of righteousness is a big issue. It's a big picture. And and what righteousness does as we become positionally righteous and then we become actively righteous, growing in Christ's likeness, righteousness flows out of our lives into the world around us. And so the third picture is this, a flower stretching towards the light of the sun. Now, I was in my backyard yesterday. Actually, you know what? You can get me to do stuff that I don't like to do because Chelsea made me rake. And that's when this story started. Um, but anyways, <laughs> so I was in my backyard the other day and I was raking against my will. Um, but I was raking leaves in my backyard and I, I moved um, some debris that was uh, on the back of our garage and under there was a dandelion. And I was like, that's crazy. There shouldn't be a dandelion under here. It's like November. And it was huge. Like it was just very, very big. Like probably the biggest dandelion that I'd ever seen. And as I moved it, I saw that the dandelion had sort of been like growing up towards this crack where all this wooden debris was. And it was trying to strain towards the sun. As I moved that debris, all those little seeds, those little things that float away, it sort of floated away out towards this area of my backyard. And, and as I was preparing this sermon, like God brought that picture to my mind. And I thought about this, like, what is a, what's a flower designed to do? Like, what's the point of a flower? Well, ultimately, its main purpose is to make more flowers. That's what it does. It wants to propagate and grow, and its main drive is to reproduce itself over and over and over and over again. And as it sends its seeds out into the world and these other flowers grow and the petals unfurl, it makes our world more beautiful just for that time that it's alive. And here's the thing. Righteousness works this way in our lives as we live positionally with right standing before God and as we're being filled with him and pursuing him and loving him and becoming like him, his likeness and his truth and his presence and his, his love and his power and his beauty and his holiness, it all radiates out of our lives and it begins to affect the people and things around us. His life alive in us brings us gradually into right standing with the people in our lives and with the institutions in our lives, and ultimately with creation, things like this happen. Our marriages begin to experience healing. Our parenting improves. We become more like Christ as fathers and mothers. Our sonship and our daughtership, our our obedience to our parents becomes more faithful. When we go to work, we have more joy We have more purpose, and we seek to serve others in that sphere. Our friendships take on a new light where we're not so concerned about what this person does for me, but our concern becomes more, what can I do for this person? And our eyes for the world begin to change, and we look around, and we see that there's people around us who need help, and we call them the least of these. We begin to see the orphan in our midst without parents. We begin to see the widow who's striving to make ends meet without a husband. We begin to see the the stranger, the immigrant, the sojourner among us. And something in our hearts changes and, and we desire to take care of these people 
We give more of our time and our energy to others. And that becomes the reality of not just what we do, but what we long to do. And righteousness progressively changes the fabric of our lives and the lives of people around us. But it starts on the inside. It starts with a longing to be like Christ. And we call this progressive righteousness. Some of you might call it justice. As we begin to long for what is good, not just for ourselves, but for our world and everyone in it, we become unwilling to do what is wrong in the Lord's eyes. We become unwilling to do what is wrong in the Lord's eyes. Small example, this morning I was, I was upstairs and I was getting a whiteboard from my wife in the back conference room and I was going through the drawers trying to find an Expo marker and I opened the drawer and there was a roll of gaff tape inside there. Now, for those of you who don't know what gaff tape is, we use it a ton in, in worship. We, like, literally most of our stuff is held together with gaff tape. But in my mind, I was like, why is this gaff tape here? Convergent Church must have left it there. It must belong to us. And so I picked it up and I started walking away with it. And I got about five steps away and something inside me stirred and said, does that really belong to you? Small, small thing. I looked at it and I said, well, you know, God, I really don't know if this does belong to Convergent Church. Maybe I should put it back. And I did. As righteousness fills our lives and we desire justice, small things like picking up something that doesn't belong to us becomes a big deal. Because our affections are changed on the inside and we become unwilling to do what is wrong in the Lord's eyes. We long for the glory of God and the good of those around us here. Listen to me. There's nothing more pleasing to God than for a man to desire what he was created for. There's nothing more pleasing to God. There's nothing more pleasing for God than for the things that he has created to design, to, the way he's designed them to operate, the way he's designed them to operate. And we were created to love God and bear his image in the world. And ultimately, this is how God satisfies the deep longing that God has placed in our hearts. It's not by giving us our current desires and fulfilling all of our wishes, but what God does is he comes down and he changes the desires in Jameson's heart. He changes my desires. He brings us brings me into, into loving union with him. And over time, he makes me like him so that, so that my heart wants nothing more than love and obedience. And I become satisfied in that. I desire God from the heart, not from obligation and not out of fear and not out of um, fear of retribution and, and not out of a, a Christian tradition, but from the core and the center of who I am cries out, I love you. I desire to do what you want from me and I will be satisfied in nothing else. My friends, only God can do that. I love the fact that we sing graves into gardens. You're the only one who can. Only God can take these things that are broken and use them for his glory and for his good. Only God can transform the human heart and, and bring us from a place where we are constantly satisfied with what we want and what we long for and for what we deserve and takes us from a person who desires that to being satisfied in what God wants 
and being who God wants me to be and, and happy when God is glorified and blessed when others are served and overjoyed when justice is done and God's blessing flows out of my life. My friends, only God can do that. And so I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I satisfied with God's righteous presence and will in my life? Or is something else attempting to satiate that hunger? Am I happy with that? Am I happy with that? Is God's grace sufficient for me? Is his presence enough for me? Convergent Church, you were made to be satisfied by God and God alone. And for those of you who are in a season right now where you're unhappy in your marriage, you know it's probably because you want your spouse to satisfy that deep longing that only God's presence can. And I've been there. I put a lot of weight on my wife in seasons. You constantly overeating? Well, Convergent Church, there's a deeper hunger that you're trying to fill. It's not about food at all. The food is just covering the real longing that's there. And maybe you don't want to admit that that longing's there and that you have to run to God to fill that longing. You know, maybe there's some of you that, that sex isn't satisfying anymore. Well, that's okay. You, you were made for a deeper union than sex. You were made for something greater than physical ecstasy. You were made to enjoy his presence and be satisfied by his presence. I mean, if you're unhappy with your job, it, it might be because you're asking that job to carry the weight of your identity when you're supposed to be finding your identity in the presence of God and growing up in his likeness and being satisfied with him. Are you hooked on a substance that you just you can't live without? The problem likely goes much deeper than that action you're not satisfied here on the inside. And you're picking up that bottle or you're popping those pills or you're smoking that pipe or whatever it is because you have something inside of you that cannot be satisfied and yet you're trying to satisfy it and it's likely spilling out all over the people around you. C.S. Lewis so wisely said this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If there's a hole in me that nothing in this world can fix, then perhaps it means that I'm made for something that this world does not have the capacity to offer me. And so let's bring this full circle. I want you guys to listen to this. Everything in this world, everything that is created in this world is an appetizer. Everything in this world is an appetizer. Food, sex, power, entertainment, friendship, marriage, parenting, all of it. Netflix, it's all an appetizer. No good thing is good enough to provide lasting satisfaction for your soul. This world was created to whet your appetite for a world that's coming. It was not created to satisfy that appetite. And if you find your satisfaction in the things of this world, your affections are ultimately misplaced from where they should be. And that's why for so many of us, 
coming near to Christ and being with Christ and growing like Christ seems so foreign because we're not hungry for that which we were designed to be hungry for because all of our appetite is satisfied to an extent in this world. We're full of the world. So when Christ shows up and offers us this wonderful gift of growing in righteousness with him and changing the world for his glory, we turn away and we say, no, Jesus, I would much rather have this today. And guys, I'm preaching to my own heart because I do it too. And so I suggest we do this. I suggest that we take some time and we understand the upside down tenant that Jesus is trying to lay down here. And here's the truth. To be filled, we must first be emptied. To be filled, we must first be emptied. Let's think about the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor, right? He's talking about an emptiness of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn an emptiness of happiness. Blessed are the meek, an emptiness of pride and self-seeking. And so far, Jesus has been saying, Convergent Church, empty yourself so that I can fill you. And so I'd like to just take some time. If, if some of the band members can come up, I'd like us to just take some time and ask God in the presence of God what things need to go. What things need to change? What in my life has become a rival for my satisfaction in God? What have I allowed to live on the throne of God to where that is the controlling mechanism of my affections as opposed to the presence and the will and the glory of God? And so I want to just take some time, brothers and sisters, and I want to just pray. So let's bow our heads. And let's ask God, and maybe your prayer is this simple, Jesus, what needs to go? What needs to go? Let's take some time and pray. Father, we're so grateful for what you've done for us and in us. Lord, we know that at one point we were content in not knowing or desiring you. Lord, you came down and you changed our affections. You caused us to hunger and thirst, Lord, with a new kind of longing a longing for your presence, a longing for your glory, 
a longing for goodness in our lives and in the world, Lord, a longing for your blessing. And so, Lord, I pray today for each of us here, Lord, that you would stir in us a new affection for the presence of God. Lord, that you would stir in us a new kind of active longing to empty ourselves of the things that do not satisfy and to begin to fill our lives with the things that you say satisfy. Lord, to fill our lives with your presence. Lord, to fill our lives with prayer. Lord, to, to feast on the milk and the meat of your word. Lord, to fill our lives with the fellowship of the saints, these things that you bring into our lives that are life-giving. Lord, help us to run to the source of life and to stay there. Lord, we are reminded that everything on this earth is an appetizer. And so, Lord, that means that we can have peace knowing that the main course is on its way. Lord, that we do not have to be fully satisfied now, but Lord, that we can hunger and thirst for the right things, Lord. Develop our hunger. Lord, increase our thirst for you. Because Lord, you are what ultimately can satisfy the human soul. Lord, help us not to settle for lesser affections but to be satisfied. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm begging God. I'm begging that you would satisfy the hearts of those here today with your presence, Lord, that we would no longer long for the things that do not bring us lasting satisfaction, God. Change us. And Lord, bless us in this. That is what we desire, that we would be happy and content when our eyes are fixed on your glory. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.